Good morning. It is a true honor and privilege to be here with you. We've got a lot of work to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we are, we are truly honored to be here. Got to be your children. Got to be members of a body that bring glory to your name. And God, as we go through your word this morning, God, as we study the truths of Scripture, God, that we would do just that. God, that honor would be given to you. God, that you would help me as the preacher, help us all as the hearers, God, to have understanding to the truths of Scripture. God, to the profound impact that they have in the lives of us. God, glory to you and to you alone. Open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to be picking back up in the story of the woman at the well in Samaria. It's been four weeks since we've been in the Gospel of John in our Eternal Word series. So I feel like it's important for us to touch back and see where we came from with that story because this element of the text really just comes right off of what we learned there. Pastor Ben preached that message and he gave us four points of emphasis for us to take away from that scripture. So by quick introduction, we're going we're gonna to work through those. The first one was that the gospel destroys cultural barriers. We saw that just so with the fact that a Jewish man, Jesus, was there in the middle of the day engaging with a woman of Samaria. Jews had complete disdain for, for those people. They were half-bred Jews. They were the impact of Assyrian influence and Gentile intermarriage and relationships years and years past, and there really was a true disdain for them. The truth is most Jews would have taken a completely alternate route to go around Samaria, but Jesus chooses to go straight through the heart of Samaria. He destroys cultural barriers. Secondly, the gospel is living water for the thirsty. They're there at a well. He's having this discourse with this woman of explaining the reality of being thirsty and needing water, and Jesus is not trying to get to the heart of the fact that she needs to drink. He's trying to show her where her true need is. They would have understood this because Old Testament prophecies continually spoke to this idea of water, living water coming out of Jerusalem, which we know is ultimately Christ Jesus. But it wasn't about the natural water. It was that that signified that of an eternal life, that of salvation, that by which only the Christ could accomplish. We saw that the gospel was a call to repentance. He tells her, go get your husband. God knows all things. He knows the heart of man. He knew the reality of her life. He was trying to get to the issue that she had with her sin and what ultimately was separating her from Christ. And he moves through this process of trying and encouraging and working in her heart that she would ultimately repent. The gospel calls us to repentance. Repentance is where it starts. Repentance is what continues in the life of that of a believer. He even, she even calls him a prophet. She is starting to catch on at the very part of that conversation that there's something different about this man than before. But the key is that salvation was in the works. And lastly, the gospel produces true worshipers. Not on the mountain 
Mount Gerasene, where they would have focused their interests as Samaritans based off of where Abraham built an altar years and years before. And then Jerusalem. There's this going back and forth, and Jesus is ultimately saying, you actually are wrong. But it's okay in this moment, because going forward in the future, true worshipers are going to be worshiping in spirit and in truth. Spirit being not the external things, the things we've talked about the last couple of weeks, but that of the spirit of man. Specifically the spirit. It's not capitalizing your text there because it's speaking of us, the way in which you and I will worship, ultimately. And that truth comes only from the word of God. It doesn't matter what man says. It only matters what God says. Man is to repeat what God says. And Jesus concluded his conversation with the Samaritan woman. And that's where we finished up. And it was a bold claim in verse 26. And we're gonna, I want to touch on that before we get into the main text. Because it says, The woman said to him in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She believed that there was a Messiah. She said, that Messiah. Future tense. She still doesn't understand what Jesus is telling her. But this powerful statement that Jesus right here is one that resonates all throughout Scripture that Christ is the I Am. He is the incarnate God. He is the Savior of the world. It would be better translated, I who to speak to you am I. That would have meant something for anyone with any Old Testament understanding. We're going to see as we move through John, there's seven I am statements that Christ will give us. I am carried much weight, unto the point that most Jews would have even been concerned to even verbalize that, of how powerful that man. And this is the declaration, and this is the climax of the story of Christ showing that he is the Messiah for this woman's ultimate need in her sin and in her situation. And I believe that leads us right into where we're going to move today. Not only the main idea of this text, but the main idea of the Gospel of John to show Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and that being the whole work of the Bible, from the Old Testament to Revelation, that it's all about Christ. It points to Christ, to the great I Am. The good news of the Messiah must go to all the world immediately, and we're going to see that as the main thought and the main thrust as we move through this text all day. Jesus Christ, the good news, that of the Messiah is to go immediately. There's some things for us to look for. This is the first time Christ reveals himself openly as Messiah. It's been veiled as he's been doing his ministry in Judea and Jerusalem because they had been in rejection to him. Israel was apostate. They were apart from God. They had taken in their own form of what God was supposed to be. But here he chooses to reveal himself as the Messiah, to the very people that there was disdain for, the very people that Jews would have said, this God is not for them. It's God's for us. With that, Jesus is initiating this global precedence that his gospel is going to go out into all the world. Think ahead to Acts 1 and verse 8, and Jesus tells his disciples there, and he says, he said, my word, my ministry is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea 
And then where? To Samaria and to all the earth. Samaria appears to be this bit of a segue. Partial Jews, partial Gentiles. But the place by which Christ reveals himself as the Messiah. And all while no physical miracles will take place. Think about that. No physical miracles. But yet salvation comes in a very strong and profound way. Let's read the text. In verse 27 of chapter 4, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, Why do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said, I have food to eat that you do not know of, you know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the work, the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So as we break that down further, we're going to see four emphasis here within connection to the Messiah and the urgency of the gospel going out that speak to those very two realities. That he is in fact the Messiah and there is in fact an urgency by which the gospel is to go forth. We're going to look at the Messiah is to be urgently proclaimed. The Messiah is sustained by his Father's purpose and his will and to accomplish all that he has. The Messiah is calling you and I, us, to participate in this amazing process. And the Messiah is setting the global gospel precedence. Let's jump back in. As we're looking at this, we're going to see two different interactions that take place. We're going to see over at the well. And then secondly, we're going to see in the town where the woman goes and the people come out of. So the, the, the message kind of goes back and forth, as you may have noticed, between these two things. But as we're looking at that, what I want us to do is I want us to jump ahead one verse. And we're going to come back to verse 27 here in a second. But I want us to kind of see how it would flow together. Picking up with that woman's response from Jesus' bold claim when he said, I am he. Right? So 26 reads, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jump to verse 28, we see. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So think about this, just the very thing. This this woman, this lady came to that well that time of the day, and all she had on her plans was that of drawing water, taking care of a very physical need. But the God of all creation had different plans. What he had for her was a day of salvation. And we're going to see that she responds in haste. And why does she respond in haste? And that's our first emphasis, because the Messiah is to be urgently proclaimed. The Messiah is to be urgently proclaimed. There has to be a change when we are impacted by the God of all creation. I was talking to someone the other day, 
And he was on his way to a, a meeting at work, and he's recounting this story. And he breaks down on the side of the road, uh, catches a flat tire. In the process of changing the tire, he's getting everything gone. He's almost done. And he slightly steps out into the road and gets hit by a logging truck. He gets up off the ground, gets back in his vehicle, drives off to work. He gets there with his group of people. He says, man, I'm so sorry I'm running late. I got hit by a logging truck while changing my tire. Of course, everybody looked at him. You got hit by a logging truck? He's like, yeah, 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 I'm sorry. I just, it just got me running late. He's like, no, no, you got hit by a logging truck and you're here? All right, we get the story. It makes no sense. The same thing is true when we are impacted by the gospel. When we are impacted by the God of all creation, you have to be changed. You can't just be the same person. That's why it becomes urgent. That's why it's something we get excited about and we have to go and we have to bring it. It's not just this, uh, you know, I think something might have happened. No, not when the God of creation touches your life. Jesus just gave evangelism 101 with this lady. He saw her need. She was there for water. He said, no, that's not really what you need. He begins to get into her sin, begins to explain to her, where the gap is, the fact that God is holy and she is actually wretched in her ways. Points to her true condition, but says, but here's the answer. I've got eternal water. I've got something that lasts forever. It's the source of eternal life. The very recognition and sorrow of her sin in her life is what led her in her repentance and unto salvation. The same thing's true for you and I. There has to be a sorrow over sin. Second Corinthians 7, 9 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. A felt need ultimately leads to death. We saw that with the rich young ruler. True sorrow and repentance that comes from the heart of Christ working on the heart of wicked man has no other option but to produce salvation. When the Lord touches, you might be here today, the first time here. Maybe you've been coming a while. And you keep coming week by week and you're not really sure why, or you're here today and you have no idea why. Well, my belief is that it's the Lord working in your heart, drawing you unto repentance. Because when we look at the reality of the gospel and what it means and the fact of why this woman was feeling the, the fact that she had to urgently proclaim the Christ. Because there was real change. She realized that all of a sudden there was a very big gap between the reality of her life and her sinfulness and the holiness and separation of that of the God of all creation. But she was left with still a question. What do I do about it? And that's where he shows her that he, in fact, was the Messiah. The decision has to be made today. Just as Pastor Ben prayed this morning, today is the day for you to confess Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's mixed people in a church gathering at any time. There are those that know the Lord and are walking with the Lord. And there are those of you who are here that don't know. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. How do we further know that she was urgently proclaiming that of the Messiah. We see that she leaves in haste. She leaves those water pots. And you say, well, that's just kind of a unique detail about leaving the water pots. Well, first of all, they would have been very large. These would have been similar pots for that which we talked about with the wedding feast of Cana. 
So they were large, cumbersome. If you've watched in The Chosen, they kind of depicted as these really big jars that she would have carried out on her shoulder. So obviously to take those things back would have been more timely. But she leaves them. It also shows us just some of the uniqueness of the eyewitness accounts to the gospel. That they would have paid notice that she left the jars. But I think even further than that, when we look at the word went, in the original language, that's the word aperkomai which means not only to go away, but to follow. It's not just this running away. It's something that you leave with the notion that what you just were impacted by is something you've got to take with you and go do something with. It wasn't just she just happened to fade off into the sunset. She was on mission. She was on mission to urgently proclaim the gospel. She had good news and she needed to tell. You remember weeks back when we were talking in the story with Philip and Nathaniel. Pastor Ben talked about that amazing bread at Rouse's that you have to tell people about. Well, how much more impactful for that of the gospel? Something that actually changes your life from the inside out rather than the outside in. John 145 spoke to that. said, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found the one in whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So we have a shift now. We're going to go back to the story. She's ran off. She's into the town. Obviously, we're hearing the recount of what that would have happened. She's having this interaction with the townspeople. And she says to them, Jesus and his disciples are still at the well. She says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, she's talking to the people in the town of Sychar that very well knew who she was. Consider what she says there. Somebody told me all that I have done. They're probably going, "Woo, that's bad." Remember, multiple husbands. It could have been as, it could have been adulterous relationships. The text doesn't give us all the details, but we know it was not that of righteousness. So she comes up, and I can't imagine. Although I believe she was urgent in her advancement to the town. I believe as she engages those men at the gates of the town and the other areas, she was probably a little weary, a little wary, excuse me, of what that was about to happen. And you can tell that because as she's moving, she gets their attention, right? She's got their attention with the fact that this man has told them all about her. And she says, in question form, can this be the Christ? And when we look at the, the Greek construction of that word, there's an implication of a little bit of an unsurety or possibly negativity on her part with regards to like, uh, to say something so bold, maybe to be the Christ, considering her sin and where she came from. She says, can this be the Christ? He told me everything about me. He got down to the heart of the matter. He dealt with it all. But I think it's clear that those men got it. Because we saw that they did what? They got up and came. They responded to the gospel. And I believe she shared the gospel with them. I don't believe she just had two sentences with them. I believe she took the opportunity to share what, in fact, was revealed in her life and what Christ ultimately told her was the answer. Because, you see, they respond. The message of the gospel has to be responded to. And they would have understood as Samaritans. Remember, they're part Jew. Their belief was isolated to the first five books of the Bible, to what we call the Pentateuch. They didn't subscribe to the things of the prophets and the Proverbs. But they would have understood what all of these connections back to the idea that the Messiah was coming at some point. 
She even said that in her part. This future tense, the that of the Messiah that could come. But either way, she gives them enough detail. She shares with enough with them with the heart of the gospel that they respond. The message shifts again here. We're going to shift back to the disciples sitting there with Jesus at the well. And this is where we jump back to verse 27. So right now, the disciples had gone in initially to Sychar to get food. Just think about that in and of itself. Jewish people going into a Gentile, a Sumerian city to get food. I mean, food was like one of the main things that they would have been concerned with. I think it's a picture of the heart of those disciples under the influence of Christ, beginning to slowly understand what mattered most and what was most important. So they come back. They're supposed to have food. It says that they had traveled all day. It was in, they were wearied from their travel. That's why they were at the well to begin with. And in verse 27, we'll catch, and then we'll jump to verse 31, because that's where his, his continuing conversation happens with his disciples. And in verse 27, he says, Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know of. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. A reality of the Messiah that we see here is that he desires to do the will of the Father. The Messiah is sustained by his Father's purpose. That's our second point of emphasis in the text, speaking to the reality and the urgency of the Messiah in the gospel. And we're going to see two things in connection to the purpose of the Father, the will of the Father, and that being the providence and the timing of what's going on here. And secondly, the provision that the Father provides. Ultimately, that of eternal weight, that of eternity. His providence is seen right here in verse 27 with the return of his disciples. It says there in verse 27, it starts off with the words, just then. That's a key statement right there when it says, just then. Because what it translates to for you and I is, at this point, at the very moment of. So simultaneously happen, the the disciples are returning, and Jesus was sharing that amazing truth of verse 26, when he said, it is I that is he. And why is the timing of that so critical? If his disciples would have gotten back before that, they could have possibly, obviously, interrupted the conversation or caused some disturbance of what they're, how, they're, how that conversation was developing. But if they get there too late, they miss his proclamation as the Messiah. That's not a coincidence. Just then, at this very moment, the providence of God is at play perfectly in the lives of the situation. It's perfectly at play in the lives of you and I. Things don't just happen by coincidence. It says the disciples marveled, and it's an internal marveling that's taking place because it says they don't in fact say, why are you talking to this person? How can this be? Right? Because they understood the cultural barriers. Remember the things we talked about? They understood what it meant for Jesus to be talking to a woman, not only a woman, a woman of Samaria, not only a woman of Samaria, but a woman in her sin. But they don't say anything. They remain quiet. They marvel. They're astonished at what Jesus is doing here. And I believe the disciples learned two things here. It was at least exposed to them. First of all, that the gospel is not exclusive to the Jews. It is one that goes out into all the world. And this was the very first time 
they were seeing this. Paul speaks to this in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. It originated with the Jews. Christ came out of Jerusalem, but it's not too small of a gospel that it would only be limited to those people. It's a gospel that is urgently proclaimed. It goes out into all the world. I also think that they would have seen the providence of God as perfect in every situation. Think about the amount of times Jesus says throughout his ministry, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. We see it over and over again. His timing is perfect, though. Even inside of those times have not yet come as he was speaking to the weight of the cross for you and I, it's Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That's a great place of rest for us, church. That is a great place of rest. You may have come here today thinking that this is just some old church service, regular, this is what I do. Oh, no. It's no chance. There's no chances. The God of all creation What a beauty that even in God's providence in this situation, in you and I's lives, he still also meets them with their provision. His eternal provision from the Father. Let's look back at the text in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know of. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish my work. The disciples were bringing actual food. They asked this bit of a, what appears to be somewhat of a silly question. Who else brought Jesus Burger King? We see Jesus' humanity here, that he desires natural food. However, there's something much greater on the mind and the heart of Christ right here than just filling his belly. But the disciples missed the truth here with connection to food, just like the woman missed it with connection to the water. And that's so true in our lives that so many times we take the physical things and we mistake them for the spiritual that the Lord is trying to do in our heart. The same thing's happening here. We are no different than what they were. Jesus is trying to show them that the greater truth, the greater satisfaction is that doing the will of the Father. That the Father sustains in his purposes in his life of his Son. When we get to John 5.30, we're going to see him say that I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own, but with the will of him who sent me. The greater hunger, desire of obeying the Father is seeing that of the Lord's church being saved. Coming to repentance and changed by the work of the gospel in their life. Luke 15, 10 says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus will accomplish all that the Father purposes in salvation. John 5, 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works of that of the Father have given me to accomplish. And the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. This was a continual pattern of Jesus' ministry as he walked the earth with regard and with connection to saving souls, to showing that he was, in fact, the Messiah. All the way up to the point where he's on the cross with his arms stretched wide, and he says, it is finished. It's finished. 
There's nothing more that needed to be done. His timing of perfection over and over and over again culminates in it being finished once and for all. He didn't say after, okay, now it's your turn. He said it's finished. The work of salvation is finished. And in his amazing grace and mercy in that moment, the Messiah is calling us to participate. The Messiah is calling us as his children to participate in the reality and the urgency of the gospel being proclaimed. We continue with his conversation with the disciples in the first part of verse 35. He says, do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? He begins with this agricultural analogy. You think Jesus is wanting to teach them about agriculture? Of course not. They would have understood it. That's why any, any good truth that's rooted in an analogy is an analogy that's truthful. It has to be that way. He's not teaching about that, but he's trying to use something that they would have understood, that of the harvest, that of wheat that would have been growing all across the countryside there. Typical wheat crops take about six months to go through full harvest. At the time in where Jesus is here, we know that it's probably the latter part of the year, more of the winter time. There probably was closer to about four months left of harvest. But what would have been interesting during this time is that wheat stays green during its time of growth. It's only towards the latter part of its life cycle where the leaves begin to die, investment becomes to happen into the grain head so that it can be harvested. But right now, the fields all around them, he's up here on this mountain, up on this well, looking out, looking down on the city, and it's green fields everywhere. Beautiful, right? Like the marsh. Then Jesus gives this power pack statement that I believe we just really need to get excited about. Let it settle in as we look what he says here. And this is where the title from this message came in the second part of verse 35. He says, look up, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. But didn't he just say the harvest was ready in four months? That's what he said there. Do not say, yet there are yet four months, and then the harvest comes. But yet look up your eyes, lift up your eyes, and see that the fields are white with harvest. Remember, there's two stories going on here. There's the one up at the well, and the ones down in the town, where the urgency of the gospel was proclaimed. The response is laid on the hearts of those men. And as Jesus looks out, the harvest is ripe because the souls that have been saved are making their way across. Their robes possibly may be white, in contrast to a green field. Wheat only ultimately got to about four foot tall, so it would have been very short at that time of the year. Jesus isn't once again talking about the grass. He's talking about the hearts of those men that just came out of the town of Sychar because the gospel was preached to them. And he's drawing them in. And he's saying the harvest is there. That is the harvest. That's the food that I live for. Jesus already knew their hearts. There wasn't any questioning. We saw back in John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. LWC, lift up your eyes. The harvest is plenty. 
the truth is still for you and I here today. We started this morning this eight-week class on evangelism. Why? Because the harvest is plenty. Why? Because we have been called to give glory to God through the proclamation of His gospel. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. And the Messiah is calling you and I as His brothers and sisters in Christ to participate in this. Pick it up in verse 36 already. The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into the labor. A harvest of souls is the food for our Savior. It's the very thing that sustains even you and I spiritually. Yes, we eat. Yes, we drink. But what really compels us as believers is the very fact that we know that the, that the God of all creation is saving people and he's called us to participate. Salvation comes by the hearing of the word. Who's going to preach the word, living word? It's all of us as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's got to be the same for you and I. Back to Luke 15, verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven when one sinner who repeats than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Continuing to verse 37, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Typical agriculture, once again, would have been the farmer planted, sowed, and reaped. Common for even us here today. That's how it works, agriculturally. But Christ has shown them, but yet another spiritual truth that means more and is much deeper than that of agriculture. There's a participation by us in the process with the Lord of the harvest. Some sow, some reap. Hasn't that been true in your life? Haven't you had times where you feel like you've poured into someone's life? You've shared the gospel with them, but you seem to see no real change or response. Maybe weeks, months, maybe years down the road, you hear that that person is now a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, man, I wish I could have been there. You were there. You were there. One sows. One plants. It was even true here in the life of the Samaritans. Although they were heretical in their understanding of it all, they had heard the likes of John the Baptist. They understood the first five books of the Bible. They had been taught to. They had been taught. There was one that had sowed in their life even before. Because now the reaping is taking place specifically here. We see Paul speaking to this in 1 Corinthians 3.6. He says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. That's you and I. There's always a but God, when it comes to things of eternity, of eternity and things that matter most. Man does not save man. God saves man. Our Lord has called us to participate in the harvest of souls. Living Word, we are on mission at all times. An urgency for the gospel is an urgency that never ends. 
Right now on Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of Mark. We've titled it just that, an urgency for the gospel, because Mark, 41 times in that book, says immediately, immediately, immediately. The time is now. The harvest is ripe. Souls are there and ready. Salvation is the ultimate way by which glory is given to God. Glory is given to God. Isaiah 43, 7, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. And then bringing it to us here, the application, Matthew 9, 37, And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Being that that's our mission, being that that's what the Lord has ultimately called us to, being that he is allowing us to participate in integrally using us for the advancement and the urgency of the proclamation of the gospel, he's also setting the global gospel precedence. The gospel is the answer to all problems. Wherever we go, wherever we do, we take a trip to Honduras, we take a trip to the other side of town, we take a trip to work, we take a trip home, we're on mission for the gospel. There is no answer, there is no problem that can be solved that the gospel can't handle. It is the key. We shift back to the Samaritans talking with Jesus as they make their way across that field, they get to the well Pick it up in verse 39. It says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Remember her sinfulness? Remember where the real problem was, the thing that Christ needed to deal with? Verse 40, So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Hearing from Jesus was a game changer. For these townspeople. They realized the reality and the weight of what Christ had done in their life. Remember, once again, these are people that have such disdain for one another. But yet the Messiah touches their life. And don't miss how profound this is that he stayed there for two days, continuing to preach the gospel, continuing to share. When we get on the other side of heaven, we hear how many people the Lord saved in the town of Sychar. It's the longest place he stayed up until this point. And the longest place he stays is that of the place that he should not culturally have even gone or been. Sleeps in their homes, continues to eat their food, all while preaching the gospel. And the townspeople, I believe, close with really two profound statements. In the first part of verse 42, And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves. This doesn't by any way minimize her testimony. This doesn't by any way minimize the work of what she said and what she did, because we know it had impact on their lives. But I think what it shows is the importance and the reality that salvation is centered on that of the finished work of the cross. Even when you and I go out into our lives and into our community, and we do in ourselves share our testimony, we have to make sure that our testimony is accompanied with the gospel presentation. 
Our, dis, our, our testimony is the work of the gospel in you and I's lives. Salvation comes through the hearing of the word and that of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. True love is sharing that. We must preach the gospel. And you say, I'm not a preacher. If you're a believer, yes, you are. You are a preacher of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ has commissioned us to do so. The Lord of the harvest has commissioned us to do so. Do we save them? Absolutely not. Man can't save man. We point them to Christ. The very thing, the very need that they have, the very reality of their sin, the need for repentance and a response by that can only be answered of Christ. Living where we must love it, we must live it, and we must preach it. You can't preach it if you don't live it, and you can't live it if you don't love it. We are signified by that of love. And lastly, in verse 42, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is huge. This is profound. This carries a weight like nothing ever. This message for the world is done by that of the Savior. There is no other Savior. Anything apart from Christ and salvation is satanic. It has no ability to save. It has no power to do anything. The emphasis here is that it is the Savior. John 14, 6, For I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Live a word, lift up your eyes. The Savior of the world is there to meet the need of all needs, that of eternal significance. Previously in chapter 1, we saw this echoed by John the Baptist in verse 29. And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even going back to Jesus' birth, Jesus has always been here for the same reason. Luke 2.11 For unto you is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior that was there to satisfy the wrath of God with men and women in complete rejection to Him to rescue Him from that situation. It's exactly what happens when you get saved as you are rescued from a direction by which you were gone that was going to send you to an eternity in hell. But God, rich in mercy, living word, the fields are white. The reality of the Messiah and the work of the gospel is real and at play. Jesus, as he says here, as we heard from this Samaritan people that should not speak in these ways, said, this man, this Jewish man, is the Savior of the world. The call for us is still true in response to that. That the work of the Messiah in our life calls us to boldly 
proclaim, immediately proclaim that of the gospel in every way and everywhere. Secondly, that you and I's mission, just as it was for Christ, was to do the purpose and the will of the Father. The ultimate way that you and I bring, bring the glory to God, showing His will, Scripture tells us that we are obedient, we are obedient to His commands, and we give Him glory in all things. That's what it looks like for you and I. And remember that the Messiah has called us to participate. Some sow, some reap. Already some of us are taking part of this. But do know that we ultimately serve the Lord of the harvest. And that mission never changes for us. It's the very same mission when we walk out of these doors. It's the very same mission when you get home, when you go to work tomorrow, when you meet with your family this afternoon for a meal, when you talk to someone on the phone. We are always on mission. We're never off. There's no time off. Living Word, our God's church is out there. Why would we not be there to seek and to find and to preach the gospel so that the Lord would save them? When you ride through this town and you think through and you begin to say, man, I can't believe that person's doing that. Man, I can't believe this person's doing this. Wow, look how bad this is. Oh man, look at this, look at this. What if we said, God, is that one of your children? May I be the one to bring the gospel to them. May I be the one that preaches the gospel and you move on their heart and save them for all eternity. And may we not limit our scope. May we learn from what Christ said there that it's a global gospel. It's one that goes to all people. We don't pick and choose who we share the gospel with. We don't pick and choose and see if someone deserves to hear our words. Our job is to preach the gospel. Always, and in every moment, and in every situation. And then, but God. But then, but God. God, your word is so good. God, your word is so true. And God, as we look today, as we look to the story, the woman of the well and her response, God, we know that that's no different here today. God, you've got people here that need to know you. Again, our hearts cry. God, as they walk out of this building, as they interact with people around them, and they've heard the gospel preached today, that God, you would do a work in their heart. God, that they would repent and turn from their sin. God, that you would do the work, Father, that only you can. And God, for the rest of us here, God, that have all been redeemed, have been saved by the finished work of the cross, God, may we understand our mission. And may we see it clearly. And that, God, you've called us to go out into a world, God, with no consideration for who we should talk to or who we should not talk to or where we should go, but God, knowing that we're on mission everywhere that the gospel is for all to hear. God, solidify that in our hearts. And give us a boldness to know, God, that we're bringing glory to you. And God, that we cannot fail when glory is given to you. I thank you. 
God, for allowing us to participate. God, for using us. God, for setting it up as such that we can be involved in the process of salvation. What a humble, humble honor. God, we seek to give you glory in all things. And God, we know, Father, that your work, God, is perfect. And God, it accomplishes all that you had it to do. And thank you for this morning. And thank you for your word. Help us, Father, to be as cunning and smart as serpents, but as gentle as doves. We do love you. Amen. See you next week. Have a great one. Love you.